Father, we thank you for uh, another beautiful day that you've blessed us with, and we thank you for yet another opportunity to come and, and grow together and encourage one another in our faith in our precious Lord Jesus Christ. Please prepare our hearts to hear from your word as we study Psalm 11 this morning. Give us ears to hear uh, what your spirit is saying to us through your word. Uh, help us to handle your word faithfully, Lord, and give us insight into what your word is saying so that we may profit from it, so that we may uh, know what your word is calling us to. And may you use it to grow us in our faith, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So let's turn in our Bibles, let's open up to the 11th Psalm. Uh, we're going to take just several Sundays just to walk through some more Psalms before turning to another book of the Bible. But we're in Psalm 11 this morning, and I'm sorry for my voice, I'm getting, getting through a cold, so please excuse my stuffiness. Psalm 11, this is a Psalm of David, and let me read it for us. David writes, In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow, they make ready their arrow upon the string to shoot in darkness at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked, and the one who loves violence his soul hates. Upon the wicked he will rain snares. Fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. The upright will behold his face. David speaks here of the Lord testing the sons of men. And I was wondering, have you ever taken a test without knowing you were taking a test? That is, someone was testing you, but they didn't necessarily want you to know that you were taking a test because they wanted to see how you would handle it. Um, would you handle it or would you fail to handle it? I know I've done this with my son a couple times. I give him an instruction to do something or not to do it. And then when that situation presents itself to him again, I kind of lurk back in the shadows watching him to see if, if he's going to remember what I told him and if he's going to do what I told him even if he thinks I'm not there. Well, as Christians, we face these kinds of tests all the time. All the time, the Lord is testing us to see what is in our hearts. Do we love him? Will we trust him? And he's always watching. I was thinking of Abraham and how he was tested. And the Lord tested him to see what was in his heart. Not that the Lord didn't already know, because the Lord is omniscient, but the actions of Abraham would reveal what was in his heart. And of course, that great test that I'm thinking about is when God called Abraham to sacrifice his son, Isaac. And I, Abraham, as you know, sought to obey the Lord. He, he brought Isaac and was about to sacrifice him. And then in Genesis chapter 22, verses 10 through 12, we know that God intervenes to spare Isaac's life. Those verses say this, Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. 
And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him, for now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. That test revealed the heart of Abraham, that he feared the Lord, that he loved God even more than his son, who was the most precious person on earth to him. The test was, would he obey God, even if obedience would cost him that much? And as I said, as Christians, we are facing tests every day, whether they're little things or big things, and how we respond to those tests, those trials, reveal what's in our hearts. Are we going to love God enough to obey him even through the midst of that trial? Are we going to trust God enough that, that we're going to run to him when those hard times hit? Peter says in 1 Peter 4, verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. So we ought not to be surprised when those tests come into our lives. In Psalm 11, we see David faced with such a fiery test. And the test that he was facing was whether or not he's going to keep seeking refuge in God or if he's going to look elsewhere for a suitable refuge. And as we work through this psalm, we're going to see David face temptation to forsake his God and fail the test. But, as we will see, he will keep his eyes fixed on the truth of who God is and what God does And we're going to see that David passes the test. And this psalm is important for us to consider and to study because as we observe how David works through this test, we are going to see a pathway for ourselves to walk as we face our own testings. So as we begin to look at this psalm, you'll notice we're not really given any background information as to what circumstances in David's life drove him to write this psalm. All we know from the psalm itself is that David was in great danger. The danger was such that this advice that he gets in the first three verses made sense. He's facing great danger. So we're going to look first at the first three verses, and we're going to see there the lure of temptation. I mentioned how David is facing temptation to fail this test of whether or not he will keep trusting in the Lord. So let's look at verse 1. He says in verse 1, In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, Flee as a mountain to your or flee as a bird to your mountain? So David opens this psalm by declaring that he has taken refuge in the Lord. And if you know anything about David's life from reading the scriptures, you'll know that this may be the most defining characteristic of who David was. He always took refuge in the Lord. He always trusted the Lord to be his hiding place, to be his protector, to be his deliverer. We see this when he's a shepherd boy. Remember when he goes out to fight Goliath and Saul says, why in the world should I send you out to be our mighty warrior to face this giant? What does David say? He he rehearses how in the past God has delivered him from a lion and from a bear as he sought to guard the flock that he was the shepherd of. And then in that very fight with Goliath, we see God deliver David. He was facing impossible odds as this mighty warrior of the Philistines towered over him. 
David defeated him because God fought for him. And then you think of all the times when King Saul was trying to kill David, how God delivered David time and time again. So David's whole life was one of experiencing how God was a refuge that was more reliable than any other refuge he could run to. And so when these advisors come to him in verses 1 through 3 and say, hey, you should get out of here. You should flee to the mountain like a bird. David is almost disgusted at this. He's perplexed. He says, how can you say that to me? How can you suggest that I trust in something or somewhere other than the Lord, the one in whom I have taken refuge? Now, we don't know who these people were who were suggesting this to David. They could have been very well-meaning advisors, just looking out to their mind for David's best interests. They, they might have been a little like Peter. Remember when Jesus was telling Peter in Matthew 16, hey, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to get beaten and mocked, and I'm going to get crucified. Do you remember what Peter did? He took Jesus aside and rebuked him, saying, this shall never happen to you, Lord. And then what was Jesus' reply to him? You are not setting your mind on the interests of God, but on the interests of men. Well, these advisors seem to have that same position. They are not taking into account the interests of God. They're only thinking on a horizontal plane. So they could have been well-meaning advisors like that. Or these advisors could have been secret enemies of David who were just trying to deviously get him out of the way. We see advisors like that in Luke's Gospel, chapter 13. In verse 31, the Pharisees tell Jesus this. They say, go away, leave here, for Herod wants to kill you. Now, do you think the Pharisees were really looking out for Jesus' best interests? No, they just wanted him to get out of town, and that was a way they could try to coax him out of there, to get him out of their hair. So we don't know what the motives are of these people. All we know is that they are, whether unwittingly or not, tempting David to seek refuge somewhere other than the Lord. And he says, how can you say that to me? How can you suggest I seek refuge in some mountain when I've already set, sought refuge in the, the greatest fortress I could seek it in, which is the Lord himself? These advisors were not setting their minds on God's interests, and David sees that. He sees that. Now, why are they suggesting he flee? Well, they explain themselves in verses 2 to 3. This is still the advisors talking in verses 2 to 3. Here we see their reasons. Look at verse 2. For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They make ready their arrow upon the string to shoot in darkness at the upright in heart. They're saying, David, you're in great danger. Even as we speak, these enemies are bending their bows to put the string on it, and they are knocking their, the arrows upon the, the bow strings, and they're getting ready to kill the upright in heart which of course includes who? David, right? He is one of those upright in heart. And these, these ones who are upright in heart, they are individuals who trust in God. They follow God. Verse 3, they go on. They say, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? 
What is meant here by foundations? Are they talking about somebody coming up to David's house and just taking a sledgehammer to the foundations of his house? I don't think so. Most commentators I read take that word foundations as a metaphor, referring to the underpinnings of society, the very things that hold society together. And they're saying that when that which holds society together has crumbled away, what can the righteous possibly do to stem the tide of anarchy and lawlessness? Who can you appeal to for help? The institutions that used to defend the cause of the upright can no longer be relied upon. The customs of decency that used to favor those who sought to do right have been turned upside down. And the laws put in place to protect the upright are ignored or overturned. They're saying, there's nothing you can do to remedy this situation, David. There's no way, when the foundations have crumbled out beneath you, there's no way to rectify this wrong that is being done. Those seem like pretty good reasons to get out of Dodge, don't they? But for David... Such reasoning has left no room in its calculations for who? For God, the very one in whom he's taken refuge. Now, as I was reading these these first three verses, especially verse 3, the foundations crumbling, it sounded an awful lot like the the conditions that, that we are beginning more and more to experience here in New York. More and more, it seems like law and order is swinging toward protecting the evildoer more than the upright in heart. More and more, our institutions, like our schools and our colleges, are training people in the art of godlessness. And because of that, I don't think it's any coincidence that never before have I heard of so many Christians talking about wanting to move down south to Tennessee or to Florida or to Texas, places where... They think the foundations of society are still relatively intact. Because after all, if the foundations of society are destroyed, what good am I going to do here in New York? If I get in trouble, who can I turn to for help when the foundations of society are no longer going to uphold my cause? What can the righteous do? And David, he's pushing back against this reasoning. He's pushing back against the reasoning that says just because there's danger, just because the foundations of society are crumbling, that means that I have to flee. He says, how can you say that? How can you reason like that? Now, David is not saying that there's never a reason to flee. After all, David fled from Saul, right? He fled from Absalom. You can think of the Apostle Paul. Uh, Shortly after his conversion, uh, he was being hunted down, and what did he do? He got lowered down over the wall in a basket to escape. In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 10, verse 23, Jesus told his disciples, Whenever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. So there can be good and legitimate reasons for running to some place where the foundations have not yet crumbled. So what is David rebuking here? 
Is he just a raging hypocrite? He says, how can you say I flee? And then he flees in other circumstances. What is he rebuking here? Well, what David is rebuking here is the kind of reasoning that says there's no hope. So let's get out of here. David here is rebuking despair. He is rebuking panic. He is rebuking the kind of thought processing that does not take God into account. David is telling us here in these first three verses that until you have made the Lord God your refuge, until you have put your trust in him rather than in institutions, you are not in a position to be able to make a wise decision about whether or not to flee. And this really applies not just to the biggest sphere of society, like state-level problems. This also applies to those little arenas of society that we find ourselves in, like our jobs. My job stinks. My boss is horrendous. He's, he's mean to me. The conditions in which I work are awful. I just need to get out of here. Well, have I stopped to first make sure I'm taking refuge in the Lord? First, I need to take refuge in the Lord and then make the decision of whether or not to stay. Or think about marriage. This person that I'm with, boy, they are insufferable. How can I continue living with this person when they treat me the way they treat me? Well, am I making the Lord God my refuge before I make a decision? Or if I'm living in a certain neighborhood and my, my neighbors are obnoxious, What's my reasoning for wanting to leave? Is it a reasoning that takes God into account? Am I reasoning from a position of having taken refuge in the Lord? Until we have first taken refuge in God, we're never going to be able to make wise decisions regarding those various pockets of society we live in because we're being ruled by what? Fear, right? Rather than trust in God. And fear inevitably leads to foolish decisions, not wise ones. Fear always ends up leading to more sinning, not less. Turn with me over to Proverbs 29, where we are told to beware of living by fear, fear of man. Proverbs 29, verse 25 That says, the fear of man brings a snare. If I'm living by fear, I'm going to get tripped up. The fear of man brings a snare, but he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. Many seek the ruler's favor, but justice for man comes from who? From the Lord. He is the one I ultimately need to be looking to. So that's the temptation that David is facing he is in danger. He has taken refuge in the Lord, but now he has advisors coming to him, giving him advice that really doesn't take the Lord into account. And so he is being tempted to put his trust somewhere else. Now we come to verses 4 through 7, where we see this test that, that he is in, this dangerous situation that David finds himself in, is not really any different from what happens to all men everywhere. 
All are tested. But there are different outcomes of that testing for different people. And that's what we're going to see in these, these next few verses. I want to ask the question, why should we not put our trust in institutions? You may have already figured this out. Why should I not put my trust in the schools or in the government or in something else? Because they're prone to what? To crumble, right? To be destroyed. And because they can crumble, because they can be destroyed, they can fail in dealing out justice. They can fail in upholding the cause of the upright. So if even those things which men think are safe are not, who should we instead be putting our trust in? In the Lord. And David tells us why. So his advisors have given their reasons for why he should flee, for why he should take refuge somewhere else other than the Lord. Now David's going to give his reasons for why, no, I'm putting my trust in the very person I need to be putting it in. So what did, let's, let's hear David's reasoning. Verse 4. Listen to what David says, how he responds to these advisors. He says, The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. The reign of man can be corrupted and can be destroyed, but the reign of God can never be corrupted, can never be destroyed. And David explains. He says, God is in his what kind of temple? His holy temple. Holy, set apart, undefiled from sinners. And God's throne is where? In heaven, far out of the reach of wicked men. And not only that, but God is said, how does David address God in verse 4? The Lord. And it's all capital letters, so what's, what's the Hebrew name behind that translation. Anybody remember? Yahweh. Yahweh. That's the name of God, the name by which he revealed himself to the Israelites. And that name comes from the Hebrew verb hayah, which means to be. That's why God said, I, he called his name, I am that I am. To be. Yahweh. He is the eternal self-existent one. He doesn't derive his existence from anyone else but himself. God is self-sustaining. He doesn't rely upon anyone else to sustain his existence. He is the reason himself for his own eternal sustained life. God is the self-satisfied one. He doesn't rely on or look to anyone else to complete him to satisfy him. He is, as the triune God, Yahweh, satisfied by himself from all eternity. He is the great I am. And as such, he can never be bribed, right? We, there's no man who's going to offer God something that he wants enough to turn against the righteous, right? He cannot be bribed. He's fully satisfied in himself. He cannot be tempted. There's nothing that is pulling at his heart that he says, you know, I think I got to have that. No, he's satisfied in himself. As the great I am, he cannot diminish in power or wisdom. He cannot be corrupted. And because of who he is, he cannot fail to uphold the cause of the upright in heart. 
That's why David has taken refuge in him. That's why he's not listening to these advisors who are not taking God into account. And what else does he say in verse 4 about this God? He says, his eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. From the vantage point of heaven, God is in a position to see everything and miss nothing. So this, this dangerous situation that David is in, God knows about it. This isn't something that has taken God by surprise. He sees the plight of the upright in heart. He sees the wicked who are lying in wait in the shadows. He's aware of the fact that the foundations of society are being destroyed. And what is he doing through all of that, according to verse 4? His eyelids do what? You get the idea of him squinting. His eyelids do what, according to verse 4? Test or examine the sons of men. He's examining everybody. He's testing everybody in the midst of this difficult situation. Now, what do you think God is testing the sons of men about? What is he looking to see in them that he's testing them about? Well, he's testing them to see if they will trust in him, right? If they will live for him or if they will reject him. This word for testing is the Hebrew word bachan, and it, the, the theological word book of the Old Testament defines it this way. It denotes examining to determine essential qualities, especially integrity. God is examining all mankind to see what is in their hearts. Turn with me over to Jeremiah. We're going to see a couple places where this word is used and where it's used in this way. Jeremiah 12. Jeremiah 12, verse 3. Jeremiah says, But you know me, O Lord, you see me and you examine or you test what? My heart, my heart's attitude toward you. That's what God is testing. Turn over to chapter 17 of Jeremiah. Chapter 17, verse 10. I, the Lord, search the heart I test, same word, I test the mind. With what result? Even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. Then turn back to Proverbs 17 with me. Proverbs 17 and verse 3. That verse says, the refining pot is for silver and the furnace for gold, but the Lord tests hearts. The Lord tests hearts. How do you refine and test precious metals? How do you purify precious metals? Yeah, heat it up. You put it through the fire. Well, God uses the same process with people. Turn over to Psalm 81. I want to show you this. 
Psalm 81. In this psalm, the psalmist Asaph is rehearsing God's dealings with Israel. Look at verse 7 of Psalm 81. Speaking of Israel, God says, You, Israel, called in trouble, and I rescued you. I answered you in the hiding place of thunder. I proved or tested you at the waters of Meribah. God When his people were enslaved in Egypt and they cried out to him, what did he do? He delivered them, right? He delivered them. And he brought them into the wilderness and God proceeded to test them. Do you remember what happened at the waters of Meribah? Well, there's actually a couple times in the Bible where a place is called Meribah. And Meribah means quarrel. There was a couple periods of time when the Israelites, as they were wandering in the wilderness, became thirsty. There was no water in the place where they were at, which was an opportunity for them to trust the Lord to provide for them in a time of trial. But how did they respond to that test? They quarreled with the Lord, hence the name Meribah. They complained. They did not trust God. You can read about this in Exodus chapter 17 and Numbers 20, two separate occasions where they had a chance to trust the Lord in the midst of hardship, and they failed the test both times. In fact, in Exodus chapter 17, verse 7, the people asked, is the Lord among us or not? So they, they reached a hard patch where there was no water, and all of, all of a sudden, at the drop of a hat, they're questioning whether or not the Lord is with them at all. They did not pass the test. God proved them. He proved what was in their hearts. He tested them at the waters of Meribah. In each case, hardship was a what from God? A test, right? A test. Back in Psalm 11, verse 4 said at the very end of the verse, Who does God test? Yeah, the children of men or the sons of men, basically everybody, right? All humanity, we're all sons of Adam. God tests everyone. But in verse 5, we see that the sons of men, that is, all humanity, fall into one of two categories. Look at verse 5. David says, The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked, and the one who loves violence his soul hates. So, If you're alive and you're human here this morning, you fall into one of two categories. What are those two categories? Righteous and wicked, right? And elsewhere, the Bible tells us how we can know which category we're in. That seems like a good thing to know, especially considering how God interacts with each group later, as we'll see in this psalm. Well, Romans 3 Verse 23 says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And what that means is that if left to ourselves, we will all find ourselves in which category? The wicked. That's who we are apart from the Lord. Wicked. But Romans 6 verse 23 says, 
that though the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And John chapter 3 verse 16 says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And Romans 3 again verse 28, Paul says, for we maintain that a man is justified. What does justified mean? Declared righteous. Paul says, we maintain that a man is declared righteous by faith apart from the works of the law. So, seeing as how we're all naturally in the category of wicked, how do we get ourselves into the category of the righteous? If we are dead in sin and there's nothing we can do to save ourselves, how do we get from here to there? According to what we just read, we have to do what? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And once we turn from sin and we put our trust in Jesus, this one who was sent from God to die on the cross for our sins and to rise from the dead, once we look to him for salvation, God immediately transfers us from the the category of wicked to the category of righteous. So how can you know which category you are in? Well, if you are daily repenting and believing in Jesus, if you, like David, are making the Lord God your refuge, you are in the category of the righteous. But if you are not, you are still in the category of the wicked. And according to verses 5 through 7 of Psalm 11, there are two different outcomes of God's testing of the people in these two categories. David first tells us what the outcome will be for the wicked. Verse 5 again, regarding the wicked, it says that the one who loves violence, his soul, God's soul, hates. We're told here that God hates the wicked. He hates the one who loves violence. And the word hate here doesn't mean that God has mean, nasty feelings towards someone. It means that he has rejected the wicked. It means that he is opposed to the wicked. It means that he is righteously angry with the wicked. And the result of that righteous hatred is seen in verse 6. What does God do once he has tested the wicked and found what's in their hearts? Upon the wicked he will rain snares. Fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. Where have you heard that language before? God raining fire and brimstone. Any thoughts? Yeah, Sodom and Gomorrah, right? That's exactly what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. Turn over to Genesis 19. Sodom and Gomorrah, obviously, were very wicked cities, and the Lord was intent on judging those cities because of their wickedness. In Genesis 19, look at verse 24. It says, Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. Verse 25, And he overthrew those cities, and all the valley, and all the inhabitants of the cities, and what grew on the ground. 
Here in Psalm 11, David is saying that what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah is going to happen to the wicked, to all who love violence, to all who do not put their trust in the Lord. That's what's going to happen to them. And even if the wicked die fat and happy on their beds in this life, that is the reality they will wake up to in eternity, fire and brimstone. That will be their lot. That will be their cup. That will be the portion that will be theirs for all of eternity. That is what God's testing of the wicked will result in for them. But what about the righteous? Verse 7. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. The upright will behold his face. The reason why God will deal with the wicked in this way is because he is righteous and he loves righteousness. But what will be the outcome for the upright? For the same reasons, because God loves righteousness and he is righteous. What will be the outcome for the upright? They will behold his face. So what have we seen in this psalm? We've seen David being tested. He's in great danger. He is one of the upright in heart who are being examined by the turbulent time in which he is living. And in verses 1 through 3, he is being tempted by voices who are urging him to put his trust somewhere else other than in the Lord. And in verse 4, we see David acknowledge that this is a test. This is how God tests all men, by bringing them through hard times. And David is determined to pass the test. He's determined to keep trusting in God to keep taking refuge in God, no matter what, no matter how hard things get. And what do we know from the rest of Scripture about how God uses testing in the lives of a believer? Let's turn to James chapter 1. So for the wicked, when they face testing, their hearts are revealed, the outcome for them is judgment, But for the righteous, that is for those who have put their trust in Jesus to be their Savior and Lord, God's testing of them produces a different outcome. James chapter 1, verses 2 to 4. James writes, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Nobody likes going through trials, so how are we to count it as joy? Why should we count it as joy? Verse 3, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. So the testing of our faith produces more faith in us, an enduring faith, so that we keep believing in the Lord till the end. Verse 4, and let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So just as silver and gold is purified through the fire and made perfect and complete, so the believer When he is tested, his faith is being purified and strengthened. Now go back to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 5. As you're turning there, has anybody here ever read any of uh, Fox's Book of Martyrs or any of the, the Voice of the Martyrs newsletters? Anybody? Raise your hand. Yeah? I don't know if you're anything like me, but when I read those stories, 
and I try to put myself in the person or in the shoes of, of that believer who suffered in that way, I start thinking, boy, I don't know if my faith would hold out. I don't know if I could endure that. I know how hard it is for me to smile through pain. I'm a bit of a wimp. I don't think I could make it through that. I think my faith might fail. But that is actually opposite of the logic of Scripture. Look at Romans 5, verse 3. Paul is describing the results of our justification. He says, And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations. Why? Knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God, that is his love for us, has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. You see, for the true believer, when God brings trials into your life, it's completely the opposite of overthrowing your faith. When God brings trials into your life, the result is actually a purified faith, a strengthened faith, a persevering faith. So if whatever happens to those individuals that we read about and that we look up to in the Voice of the Martyrs newsletter or in Fox's Book of Martyrs or even as we read in the Book of Acts, if we have truly repented of our sins and trusted in Christ and such testing comes upon us, what is going to happen? Are we going to buckle? No, because God is using that to strengthen our faith and his love for us through the Holy Spirit he has put inside of us will carry us through that testing. That's how testing works in the life of the believer. Testing ensures that we keep persevering in the faith. Let's read 1 Peter 1. This is the last verse we'll read. 1 Peter 1, again on the, the subject of testing and what the outcome of testing is. 1 Peter 1, verse 5. <clears throat> Peter here is writing to encourage believers who are suffering for doing what is right. And he describes believers in this way. 1 Peter 1, verse 5. Believers are, verse 5, protected by the power of God, through faith, for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Verse 7, so that the proof or the genuineness of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 8, And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. That is the outcome of the upright in heart. That is the outcome of the righteous. That is the outcome for everyone who turns from their sins and puts their trust in Jesus Christ. Salvation for your souls. And Peter says there in that passage that we do not see Jesus now, right? We see him with the eyes of faith. But according to this psalm, verse 7, what is that great 
destiny coming for every believer. The upright will behold his face. There is coming a day when we will see him. We will see him face to face. And that sight will satisfy us for all eternity. Look over at Psalm 17. I know I said 1 Peter would be the last one, but these verses are too good to miss. Psalm 17, verse 15. Look at what the psalmist says there. He says, As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. I will be satisfied with your likeness when I awake. It is the sight of the glory of God that will make heaven heaven. It is that which will give us joy forever and ever. The Puritans called it the beatific vision, the blessed vision, seeing our Lord face to face. And when you make the Lord your refuge, when you take refuge in God, when you say, I'm not going to trust in man, I'm not going to trust in the institutions of man, I'm going to trust in the Lord alone. When you, put your trust, when you put your trust in the Lord, the foundation of his temple, the foundations of his throne never crumble. And that great hope that we have of beholding him face to face is a hope that can never be taken away from us. It doesn't matter how much society is crumbling around, around us, crumbling down around us, that hope is ours in Jesus Christ. And nobody can take it away. And God is making certain that we keep believing in him all the way until the day we see him face to face. That is why Paul, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 18, when he's expecting to be martyred, listen to what he says. He says, The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. You say, Paul, you were martyred. Paul knows he's going to be martyred in that book, but yet he says the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. Even though his very physical life was going to be taken from him, because his trust was in the Lord, he knew it was going to be okay. And that when he awoke, he would be beholding the face of the Lord and he would be satisfied forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this wonderful example that we have in Psalm 11 of trusting in you, even when things seem to be falling apart all around us. Lord, we thank you for David showing us that, that you are a trustworthy God and that you are in your heaven and nobody can threaten your rule. Nobody can overthrow your plan for your people. Lord, help us to trust in you. Help us not to put our trust in men. Help us not to trust in chariots, Lord. Help us to trust in the Lord alone. And Father, for anybody here who has not yet trusted in him, anybody here who is still in the category of the wicked, please open their eyes to see Jesus Christ and what he did to save wicked sinners like them. Help them to turn from their sins and trust in Jesus to be their Savior and Lord. And you will transfer them from the, the category of wickedness to the category of righteousness. Not because they are righteous in and of themselves, but because you have clothed them with the righteousness of your Son, and you will bring them to live with you forever and ever. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.